Thank you, Emily. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 7. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a blue copy or a blue and white copy somewhere around you. Looks like this. And if you don't own one, feel free to keep this uh, as your own. If you do own one, please don't steal. There's a commandment somewhere here in Exodus about that. Exodus 7, uh, it's page 28 if you have one of these blue Bibles right at the beginning of your Bible. I'm going to be reading here and then we'll, we'll dig in. Moses writes this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. So if you're new, or it's been a couple weeks since you've been here, uh, we are trekking through the book of Exodus, really for about the next year and a half, off and on. Um, And and we're listening to the story about God delivering uh, his people out of slavery Uh, and into uh, what would eventually be the promised land. And just a quick recap here is chapter 7. We're getting ready to to step into the next uh, next week, uh, the rest of chapter 7, all the way through chapter 10. So we're going to do almost four chapters there together, uh, and we're going to bundle the plagues together, because really the plagues are, although they're different, they have one big message. And so we're going to talk through that next week. But I wanted to spend some time here at the beginning of chapter 7, laying out kind of an introduction to what's been called the plagues or the miraculous judgments of God, because there's, there's some key patterns that get repeated over and over again. And so before we do that, I want to recap kind of where we find ourselves uh, in the story of Exodus. So uh, Exodus chapter 1, we learn of this kind of maniac, uh, sociopathic ruler, emperor named uh, the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh essentially, with his uh, kind of government, uh, sees this ethnic minority, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, as essentially a dangerous threat to uh, national security. And so uh, the response to this threat is to begin to institute policies in an escalating manner to deal with uh, these people that he views as a threat. There's this fear, you read in chapter 1, of them growing and multiplying to a place where they begin to threaten the power structures. And so the first thing that the Pharaoh does is to enslave them. And then the second thing is he eventually will sponsor publicly uh, a state-sponsored genocide. 
And so those are kind of his responses. So we have all of this oppression and violence we see uh, in the early chapters of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 3, the question is, what is God going to do? The first two chapters, God is silent, right? Really to the very end of chapter 2, we hear nothing from God. And in Exodus chapter 3, God begins to call this guy named Moses, or if you watch VeggieTales growing up, Big Mo, uh, Mo and the Big Exit, I think was the name of that episode. My kids watched a million times as as little children. Um, And so Mo, God raises up this very flawed man, right? Like he has all kinds of anger issues. He deals with self-doubt. Again, like, the book of Exodus, if you're looking for a character study, it's not Moses, okay? Like, it's God. But, but like, the, Mo is this imperfect character. He kills somebody. He goes out to the desert and gets exiled for a little while. And then he comes back, uh, you know, 40 years later, and God begins to kind of refine him and shape him and mold him into this man who would deliver uh, his people. And so there's this throwdown, essentially, like in chapter 5, between Mo and the Pharaoh. And so in chapter 5... Pharaoh, Mo goes to to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go. And the response of Pharaoh kind of frames up uh, really uh, chapter 7 to 10. And so this is the the fundamental question that Moses is answering in uh, the plagues, in the disasters, in the judgments is this. Pharaoh said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And, And if we're honest, that's like the question that a lot of us are still asking today. It's like, who is this God that I should obey his voice, right? Who is this God who claims to have authority? And, and that really threatens, that gets underneath the Pharaoh's skin. Now, the Pharaoh's cool with gods, right? Like there's 114 or so gods that the Egyptians would have worshipped. So it's not gods per se that begins to, to threaten Pharaoh. It's that God would claim to have authority over, over Pharaoh. That really begins to get underneath his skin. That he would be able to say to Pharaoh, let my people go with the expectation that he would not only hear those words, but actually obey them, right? And that's kind of the thing that bothers and threatens a lot of us. When God says, I want you to do this with your sexuality. I want you to do this, this, this with your money. I want you to do this with your family. I want you to do this with your relationships. I want you to do this uh, in terms of your job, right? Like, it's when God begins to make claims on us that we're all of a sudden like, whoa, you know, like, no thanks. I got this, right? And so that's what's happening here uh, in chapter 7 to 10 is, is, is God is responding to Moses' question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so I want to point out three patterns in our time together that we see um, over and over and over again in chapter 7 to 10 just by way of introduction. The first one is the pattern of hardening. Hardening. The second one is the pattern of judgment. And then the third one is the pattern of of mercy. And you can think of these as kind of three strands to the rope that's going to guide us through really the, the rest of the book of Exodus. So let's start with the hardening, right? So God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not going to do it. Matter of fact, not only am I not going to do it, I'm going to double the work quota, right? I'm going to double like your sales quota, and I'm going to take away, I'm going to slash your budget by like 200%. So now you have to make bricks without straw, and that makes everybody mad at Moses. And so God in chapter 6 shows up and says, hey Moses, I've got this, don't worry, right? I'm going to do what I've promised to do. And so in chapter 7, he sends Mo to the Pharaoh. And he says to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You will speak all that I command you, and your brother will tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now here's where it gets interesting. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders, 
We'll talk more about those signs and wonders, kind of the disruption of the natural created order, like God's ability to intervene into the natural world and produce supernatural things. Even though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts by great acts of judgment. Now, what's cool about this section in in, uh, Exodus is God begins to, and Moses, the author of Exodus, begins to pull back the curtain on kind of the interior world of Pharaoh, right? Like, we often wonder, like, what's happening in, like, oppressive rulers? Like, what would make somebody do, like, the heinous things that you see on the news, right? And you're just like, who does that? Like, this is crazy. Like, and and so what happens here is we get, a lot of people want to take the Bible and kind of reduce it down to like this two-dimensional felt board. Like if you grew up in church, you know what a felt board is. It's like, you know, that board where like your Sunday school teachers or like your religious instructors would have like these characters. And we want to kind of reduce people down to two-dimensional. But really what we see in, in, in the Exodus and throughout the Bible is people are complex characters. And we get a window into the inner workings of their interior lives. We saw that with Moses a few chapters ago. We actually, even in the book of Exodus, get a window into the interior life of God. We, we read that God is slow to anger, abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Like we see the heart of God, not just like his commands. Everybody tends to think of Exodus and you think of the Ten Commandments, right? Like these rules that God has for us that basically is like don't have any fun in the world. Um, like no, like you see the heart of God, his compassion and his mercy. And then we get a window into, Moses pulls back the curtain on, the fundamental roots of sin and suffering and injustice and how God is working to redeem those things. And so in the plague narrative specifically in chapter 7 to 10, God is going to deal with both the root of injustice and idolatry and also the fruit of idolatry and injustice. The root of injustice, the Bible says, is the radical ruin of the human heart. The human, the human heart is flawed. It is ruined because of sin and rebellion and treason against God the King. And so he's going to show us how he deals with hard hearts. But we also see that it's not just personal, it's not just individual, that injustice actually gets multiplied and gets kind of um, structured into systems and into governments and into policies, and it manifests itself as the fruit of evil and wicked systems and structures. And by the way, that's also what God's concerned about. God's not just concerned about sin on an individual level. He cares about sin that's systemic and structural as well. And he deals with both in chapter 7 and 10. He's going to deal with Pharaoh this week. And in the next couple chapters, he's literally going to tear down the Egyptian power structures plague by He is seeking to overturn an evil empire. So that's what's happening here. So this hardening thing, though, is a really significant theme in uh, the book of Exodus, and specifically here in chapters 4 to 14. Eighteen times Moses tells us that a hardening happens. Now here's what's interesting. Of those 18 times that hardening is mentioned, three times it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Six times it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened apparently by some mysterious third, I don't know if they like outsourced this, but some mysterious third party hardened his heart. And then nine times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because that feels unfair, right? He's going to hold 
Pharaoh accountable for something that he's essentially treating him like a puppet, and he's just orchestrating all these events. That's the problem that some of us have with the power and the sovereignty of God. If God is good, and he's wise, and he's loving, he's all-powerful, as somebody said to me after the first service, then aren't we just robots? And isn't, isn't Pharaoh just God's robot? Why would he destroy him and hold him accountable for something that he is in charge of, right? Um, or does Pharaoh harden his own heart? Or is it some combination of both? So let's talk about what it means to have a hard heart, and then let's talk about um, what that means for us. So there's two aspects to the hardening that I think are important for us to notice. First is just the internal dynamics. Like, what do the actual words mean that Pharaoh had a hard heart, right? The heart in the Hebrew Scriptures is not how we think of heart. When you, when you talk about your heart, like, share your heart with me. Pour your heart out to me. Like, you're grabbing coffee with a close friend, and if you're like, if you have even just an ounce of emotional, what we might call emotional intelligence, you're like trying to probe into somebody's heart, um, and you're saying, share your heart. We tend to think of that as just emotions, which is why most men don't like to talk about their hearts a whole lot, just kind of on the whole. It's like, I don't do emotions. Um, but in the Hebrew mind, in the Hebrew way of thinking, the heart was actually the executive control center of human activity. It was the operating system out of which everything else flowed, right? Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. It's the center and the wellspring of our thoughts, of our emotions for sure, but also of our choices and decision making and our longings, like our desires come those, those parts of us that seem irrational that we can't explain, like, I'm just drawn to this thing, I'm drawn to this beauty, I'm drawn to this person, like, all of that, the Bible says, comes from the heart. Now, this word harden, uh, there's three different verbs that are used in the Hebrew to describe the word hard-hearted. Um, it could mean heavy in some places, like literally like a physical uh, heaviness, like imagine like a heavy boulder. It can mean unresponsive. It can mean stubborn, like you call somebody hard-hearted, you get stubbornness. Um, it, could, it could also mean just lacking basic emotional intelligence, right? Like you're dismissive of and you have a, a fundamental inability to consider the feelings and the thoughts and the burdens that other people carry. All of those are kind of wrapped up in the idea of what it means to be hardened. Nahum Sarna, who's a, a biblical scholar, says it like this, hard heart connotes the willful suppression of the capacity for reflection, for self-examination, for unbiased judgments about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart becomes synonymous with the numbing of the soul, a condition of moral atrophy. So the idea here is that, that Pharaoh lacks a soul. He lacks a center. There's a fundamental emptiness inside of him and an inability to have compassion and to think uh, in an unbiased way, to, to reflect on the difference between right and wrong. We see this, God begins to hint at this early on in the book of Exodus chapter 3 verse 19. Uh, God says to, to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, right? He's so possessed, his character has been so corrupted through both Kind of his nature, right? We know that like the heart is desperately sick, the Bible says. Like the moment that we rebelled against God or our parents rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, it, 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 it introduced kind of a stain on the heart and the soul of man. And so we have this nature that just, I mean, like you see it, like if you have a three-year-old, you have a two-year-old, it's just like you tell them to do this and what do you want to do? You want to do the opposite just because they told you to do this, right? Like we're not that different as adults, right? Like, you know, like your boss says do this and there's something in you that wants to be like, you do it. 
You know, like, that's just, that's just how we are. Like, you tell your kids don't play in the street, and it makes them want to run headlong as fast as they can onto Capitol Avenue. There's just something fundamentally broken. But we're not robots. Like, we can choose to not do those things. And sometimes we do choose to not do evil things. So we're not as bad as we could be, but there's something in us that continues even like irrational. Like you ever just, it's like, I know I shouldn't do this. I know it's like 9.30 at night and I know that I need to lose weight and I should not be eating this ice cream right now. Like there's just something about, I should not be eating this donut right now. Like I should not be engaging in this conversation that's inappropriate. I should not be watching this show. I, I know that I should, but there's just something irrational that continues to like, draw you towards it. That's what he's saying. Like, over time, Pharaoh has, out of a broken heart, a sick heart, made these choices that have turned him into this kind of a, of a man. So that's kind of what's happening inside of Pharaoh. And then culturally, there's a bigger thing that Moses is trying to communicate here when he says, I will make you Moses, God says, I will make you Moses as God to Pharaoh. Now, if you know anything about uh, Egyptian, kind of like the way that their society worked, the way their government, wor- government worked, is that Pharaoh, this Pharaoh historically, this is probably about the 15th century, most people believe that the Pharaoh at the time was none other than King Tut, right? You've heard of King Tut. Uh, his full name uh, is actually Tutankhamun, right? Tutankhamun. And it means literally the living image of Amon. Amon was an Egyptian deity. And he's often paired together or fused together with Ra, who was the sun god. And so you'll often hear people talk about the, the deity in Egyptian kind of folklore and myth, uh, Amon-Ra, right? The most powerful deity, in a sense, of them all. And, and the Pharaoh was essentially a living embodiment of Amon-Ra to the people. Pharaoh represented absolute, unrivaled power. So when he says, Moses, I'm going to make you like God, what he's saying is, Pharaoh, you're not God, right? I am more powerful than the, than the most powerful living human being on the planet. And this idea about the heart, also there's another cultural thing here that helps uh, cast a little bit of light on another layer here. Um, if you understand Egyptian culture and religion, you know that many temples and tombs in ancient Egypt pictured a heart weighing in the balance. Like imagine the balances and you have a heart over here and, and the, on the other side you actually have what's called the feather of righteousness, right? And so there's a famous story in, in this uh, Egyptian book called the Book of the Dead and it tells the story of a man named Ani, no uh, relationship to our Ani here, Anali, uh, this man named Ani whose heart, he goes into uh, the throne room of judgment and finds the god of death who is Anubis in this throne room. And Anubis calls for Ani's heart to be weighed in the balance against a feather of righteousness. And if his heart was weighed down with evil deeds and thoughts, then it would tip the scales heavier than the feather of righteousness, and the God of death would send him to his great destruction. So the question was, would the person's heart at judgment be as light as a feather or as hard and heavy and weighed down as the Pharaoh's? So this is a familiar Egyptian way of describing a heart that would not pass through the final judgment. So do you see what God's doing here? God, in describing this hard-heartedness, is not only asserting his authority over, his power over Pharaoh, but he's making it clear in a way that both Israelites and the Egyptians would have understood that the Pharaoh's heart will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. It will be much harder and heavier than the feather of God's righteousness and that God will be the one to judge Pharaoh. So, back to our question. 
Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Yes, right? Like, you could see this as kind of the sto- like two stories of Pharaoh's heart. On the one hand, Pharaoh made choices rooted in a heart sickness, right? And, and in doing so, he was possessed by a character that had been corrupted, and it set itself in a, in, on a kind of an inevitable trajectory towards genocide and violence and oppression. But also we see God hardens his heart in a sense by saying, hey, you know what? You want to become that kind of person? You want to do this? I'm going to turn you over to the consequences of your choices. I'm, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to turn you over. We see God doing that. Like sometimes God's wrath, we think of God's wrath as like Zeus lightning bolts and like God, you know, giving people cancer and all these terrible things. Like God's wrath in the Bible, actually one of the most terrifying glimpses into the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is not his active wrath, but his passive wrath. It's him stepping back and saying, you know what, you want to do this, you want to go this way, fine, I'll let you. Romans chapter 1, right, God has revealed himself, has revealed his righteousness from heaven, and mankind rebelled against that, and so God literally turns them over to a debased mind. He turns them over to distorted, perverted affections. And all the kind of the sins that then flow out of that, lust and greed and envy and all the kind of things, pride that we think of, all flow out of God just saying, you know what, you want that, you can have it. That's what's happening here in the story of Pharaoh. Now, when it comes to like God's sovereignty, um, which by the way, like just this idea that God is powerful and that he is sovereign and in control of all people, all times, all places, all situations, even the human heart. Like just as a side note, that's assumed throughout the story of Exodus, right? Like that's assumed in the Bible. It's not really up for debate. Um, it, it's just kind of assumed everywhere we go. But we, we tend to get hung up with God's sovereignty um, and we get hung up by this idea that God would be infringing on human uh, freedom and responsibility. Right? Because we live in the West and we hate anybody telling us what to do. We hate feeling like we don't have a sense of agency. And so the idea that God is sovereign, God, God makes decisions, and we kind of have to just live with it, it, it rubs against the grain of kind of our, of our cultural moment, and it really always has, but especially now. And here's the thing I want you to hear in the book of Exodus. Moses is not concerned in the book of Exodus with the problem of evil as we tend to think of the problem of evil. In other words, like, am I, do, I ha, do I make real choices? Like, if God is good and he's loving and he's powerful, like these questions we ask kind of philosophically, that's not the question that he's asking here in the book of Exodus when it comes to the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. In other words, the question is not, is mankind free under the heavy hand of God? That's asked in other places of the Bible, but it's not the concern of Exodus. The question that Moses is actually answering is the flip of that. Not is mankind free under the heavy hand of God, but is God free over the heavy hearts of mankind? In other words, can God do anything about it? We see all this brokenness, all this evil in the world, and the question is, can God do anything about it, or is he bound Right? The freedom of God is actually what Exodus is about. The power of God is what Exodus is about. The glory of God. The freedom of God to deliver, to show mercy, is the primary concern. Right? And like we want that. If you're oppressed, you want God to be in control. I mean, that's what he's saying to Pharaoh. You're not in control. And man, that is good news that God is not bound. 
He's not impotent. He is not limited by the hard-heartedness of human beings. He is powerful, and he will stretch out his hand to save. I mean, that's what Paul says many generations later in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he brings up this question of human responsibility and God's power. That's essentially what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will, not on exertion. Anything that's about to happen in the book of Exodus does not ultimately hinge on our ability to get it right, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. This is a direct quote from chapter 9. I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The spectacular thing about God is that he has mercy on anyone. None of us deserve mercy, and yet God continues to show mercy to hard-hearted people. He hardens and directs the hearts, the hard hearts of leaders, and he shows mercy. He goes on to say later in Exodus, shows mercy to a thousand generations. So, this is good news, right? It's good news that God's in control of the brokenness of the human heart, the radical ruin of the human race, because it means that we're not subject to the whims of history. We're not subject to the, to the evil, corrupt desires of hard-hearted men and women who lead in, in different ways. God is in control. God is directing history, and I would just say to you, if that bothers you, which I, I know like it grates against us, if it bothers you, this is not a riddle to be solved. Like I'm not going to be able to give you like the formula. And it's like, well, God's power is like an egg. And it does this. Like, no, like there's no, there's no comprehending this. Like God's ways are higher than our ways. Like in the same way that my seven-year-old can't understand um, just fundamental facts about life. And we're constantly having dialogue where it's just like, she thinks like anything that I do, my youngest, anything that I do is like me oppressing her, right? Like me trying to be mean, like on a daily basis, my daughter basically says, you're mean. Like I just looked at you, like what, what, what? I'm trying to like help you, I'm, like trying to put your clothes on, give you a bath, and you're like, stop it, you're unjust. It's like, like that's how God interacts with us. And then like the difference between the comprehension level of my seven-year-old and me is like infinite between me and God. Like God is working in the world and he's doing things. And I'm like, God, where are you? You're unjust. How dare you? And God's just looking at us as a parent looks at his children and says, hey, I've got this. That's why Paul, ending this section in Romans chapter 11, will go on to say, he says, this is not a riddle to be solved. This is a mystery to be delighted in. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He's saying, aren't you glad that you don't have to be the potter to figure all this out? But we have a God who is and we need to trust him, like praise God that he's got, he holds together all of these complexities, and he's weaving them together for our good. Isn't it nice to know you don't have to be God? Isn't it nice to know you don't have to figure it all out? This is good news, and there is a God who is in control. 
Second thing, quickly, we'll preview this one because we'll come back again. We see not only the hardening, but then the response to the hardening is judgment. But it is judgment. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you, so I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring out my host. That's another word for military divisions. I will bring out the military divisions of my people from among them. So, so God is going to judge. He's going to deliver. And then notice uh, how he does that through this, this, this series of miracles. Now, some people call this, these plagues. Uh, the word that's actually used most often throughout the, the plague narratives is actually a word, the Hebrew word ot. And it's a word that means uh, miraculous signs. So the focus here is on the miraculous intervention of God into kind of like the cycles of, of history, right? And so what Moses is recording for us is not just diseases or plagues that are like random. These are actually targeted. Um, there's 11 of these, not 10. There's 11, starting with the first one here with the sea creature. There's 11 miraculous signs having in common their indication of God's sovereignty over Egypt, over the Egyptians, and over Pharaoh. Each one of these signs is intended to deconstruct a different false god in the Egyptian power structure and to point them to the, the reality of the one true God. That's the purpose of the plague. So the first one we see, uh, this miraculous judgment here, is uh, around what, what your Bible probably says is a serpent or a snake. And so um, God tells Mo, take the staff, throw it down, it's going to become a serpent. And then there's this like showdown between the staffs where like one staff swallows another staff. And it's like, what is exactly going on here? So let me explain this a little bit culturally, what's happening here. Uh, this word for snake or serpent is actually the word tanin. It's a different word than what we used in chapter three or four to describe a snake. It actually, it, I prefer, it actually could mean sea creature, which just sounds way cooler than snake, okay? Um, it means like, if you think of Leviathan uh, in the Old Testament, if you think of like dragons and krakens, like in like, you know, folk, like this is the idea. Some big, nasty, crazy sea monster, right? Like he throws it on the ground. Some people think it could have been a crocodile, like one of those big crocodiles. Uh, nobody knows. But basically, it's this hostile creature that would have been very scary. And then the rod was uh, symbolizing the Pharaoh's power and authority, essentially. It was called the rod of God. Pharaoh, uh, there's a lot of inscriptions that we, we can dig up from ancient Egyptian archaeology, and we see always the Pharaoh holding this rod. It's the rod of Osiris, who is the god of the afterlife. And so what we have here, essentially, is just Pharaoh and the rod and the snake representing the power and the authority of Pharaoh over all of nature. So what, what happened is uh, the Egyptians, again, one of the most advanced civilizations of the ancient Near East, really in world history, they had built this kind of intricate system of religion and psychology and technology and economics and politics. And it was aimed at kind of harnessing and exploiting the powers of the natural world in order to maximize the interests of a very small group of, uh, a very small group of powerful elites. And so what God is uh, targeting here in this first miracle is Pharaoh as, as kind of the representative of this dehumanizing, disintegrating power that tries to live life autonomously outside of God's power, right? That's what the Pharaoh represents. Like, it's a, it's a representation, a parable of life apart from God, outside of God's power, his authority, and most importantly, his mercy. 
This is like violence and oppression on an infinite scale. And so the plagues are judgments against that system. And, and what God does is he turns Pharaoh's program against him. Everything that he's trusting in, fire, wind, earth, water, like his ability to dominate, harnessing technology, his ability to dominate the natural world. That's what they were doing in Egypt at the time, dominating the natural world. God turns those things against him, and he essentially reverses creation and unleashes chaos. That's the idea with a serpent or a sea creature. The, the sea represented dark, primordial chaos. And, and when, when Aaron's staff or Moses' staff swallows up the Pharaoh's staff, what God is saying is, I'm about to unleash chaos on you that none of your magicians will be able to control. I'm about to unleash, you, you think you know chaos? I created the universe. I'm about to bring a kind of disintegration that you've never seen and you can't do anything about it. And he says, essentially, by swallowing it up, he's saying evil is going to be swallowed up in the judgment of God. Two times in chapter 7 to 15, we read about things being swallowed up here. And then the Egyptian army, it says, is swallowed up in chapter 15. What he's saying is evil will be swallowed up forever in the judgments of God. So here's what I want us to just kind of talk about as we begin to kind of wrap up here over the next little bit. Um, I want you to see that God's compassion, like, like we don't like to talk about judgment um, we, we, I think we're okay with judgment. We talk about uh, judgment like when it comes to bad people. Um, and and we, we tend to think of like judgment and love as two different things, right? Two separate things. What I want you to see in Exodus is that Moses bring these, brings these things together and shows us that um, judgment is actually necessary for the world that we all long for. That compassion is not just comfort. God's compassion always involves confrontation, confrontation with those things that oppose his design for flourishing in the world. Those, those things that, that oppose his justice in the world, God is going to confront. God will throw down, right? And again, this is good news because it means that God is committed to repairing what's broken, right? Like if you hate child pornography and sex trafficking, if you hate like infertility and if you hate cancer and if you hate all the things that are evil and not as they should be in the world, like, this should be good news because it means God will bring judgment on all of those things. God will repair. He will bring healing to. He will destroy anything that opposes his purposes in the world. He's committed to doing it. And here's the good news also, is that only God can do it fairly. Like, what happens when you try to bring justice? Like, when you try to bring judgment in the world, you try to bring justice in the world, somebody betrays you, your kids go crazy, right? Like uh, somebody cheats you out of something. What do we do? We, we're like, bring the wrath of God. Like right now, we're like, grab the staff and let's go. Fire, blood, like somebody's going to pay. Somebody's dying, right? Like that, we have these kind of like whiplash emotional reactions to uh, evil in our lives. But only God can truly judge in a way that's fair. Only God has the vision to be able to see somebody's heart. We see that he can see Pharaoh's heart. Nobody else can. Only God has the wisdom to know when to judge and how to judge and, and what's enough judgment. Only God has the resources to do it in a way that's completely fair and just. Now, up to this point, all of us are like, yes and amen. Judge the bad guy, right? Like, we like to think of judgment as taking down the man, right? Like, this is like, take down the man. Pharaoh's been exploiting people. Let's take him down. 
And we have a tendency to kind of externalize evil and project it on other people, right? Like a coworker, boss, an ethnic group, a political party, a financial system, a technology. Like it's easy for us to project our anxieties and our fears and our frustrations on those things, on the other. We're cool with them getting what we feel they deserve, wrath, judgment, and justice. What we don't like, though, is to think about us being judged. What we don't like to do is to read ourselves into the story, not just as Israel, but as Pharaoh. I grew up in the uh, 80s and 90s when, like, kind of tolerance was a thing. And so, like, everybody's like, hey, man, just kind of do your own thing, live and kind of let live and just kind of leave people alone, be a nice person don't hurt anybody, right? And so there was not like this kind of thirst for justice. Like in those days when you were preaching, you kind of had to make a case for like justice and judgment. That's totally flipped now, right? Like we live in a world that's very active and is protesting injustice as we should be, things that are wrong in the world. So I don't think that I have to convince any of you that, that we all long for justice. We all long for the world to be made right. We all long for people to stop being oppressed. What we don't like to think though is that we are not only the oppressed but the oppressors, right? And so in this story, there's also bad news, right? We tend to read ourselves into the story as Israel, which is not entirely untrue. We do experience suffering. We do experience oppression. But what if we're also Pharaoh? What if we are the ones whose hearts are hard and sick? What if we're the ones whose hearts are ruined because of idolatry and injustice? What if we are complicit in the very power structures and systems that we attempt to condemn and to protest and to hashtag? What if our lust damages other people? What if our greed hurts other people? What if we're involved in the very things like, what if our envy actually has an impact on the people around us? What if our words and our thoughts are actually being used, which they are to dehumanize those around us? Like we can all think of times when we have had an impact on somebody because of what we thought or what we said or what we did. That is the Pharaoh impulse in all of us. It is an inescapable part of being human that we are not just Israelites being oppressed, but we are Pharaohs. There is a Pharaoh, a tyrant, a sociopath that lives inside of you, a little Pharaoh who wants to have his way in the world, whose heart is hard and sick and corrupted and is bent on doing his own way. What if we are just as much victimizers as we are victims? That's actually what we find out through the rest of the story about Israel. Is that yes, God brings judgment on the Pharaoh for his hard-heartedness. And he delivers Israel. But they haven't been out of Egypt five minutes and they go to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and what do they do? They start, I mean, like at the launch party for God's new society, right? Like everybody's there smoking cigars, bourbon's out. It's like, all right, we finally arrived in the promised land. And five minutes in, what do they do? They're dancing with golden calves and worshiping false gods. Later on, the prophets would go to denounce them and say, you, Israel, have hard hearts. Now, that was meant to be a dig, right? That was meant to be a dig because like when they heard that, they were going, oh my gosh, OMG, they just called us Pharaoh. We see that evil is not just out there in the world. It's not just externalized in political systems 
and ideologies and leaders. It's actually something that lives in us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a great little passage where he's talking about um, how like Christian writers have this tendency to kind of like make a big deal out of what he calls small sins. So we might, you might be going, well, I'm not a pharaoh. Like I didn't commit genocide. I'm not like murdering a bunch of people. I didn't, I didn't uh, kill anybody's firstborn kids. Okay, I'll give you that maybe. I don't know if you are, but let's just assume that you're not. But he says that Christian writers have always emphasized like the small little sins of thought. You like ever wear, wonder about that? Like why is lust such a big deal? And it's like, you know, in the Bible is like if you lust, it's like the same as committing adultery. And then like murderers at the cross like get let off and it's just like if you just believe in, believe in me today, you'll be in paradise. It just seems weird. And so responding to that, here's what C.S. Lewis says. What they're always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self, which no one sees in this life but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands and another so placed that however angry he gets, he'll only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents, will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he's tempted. And will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straighten out again. Each is in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside. Every time you lust, every time you make a choice to dehumanize somebody with your thoughts, every time you get angry, every time you allow shame to dominate your interior world, every time you envy somebody, every time you allow a root of bitterness to creep up and to take root in your heart, you are becoming that kind of person. There's a Pharaoh that lives in you that must be destroyed. That's what judgment's about. And here's the last thing as we go to communion. Judgment ultimately is about mercy. Judgment is ultimately about mercy. The context of judgment in this story and in the Bible and in our lives is always mercy. It's always bracketed by mercy. Notice verse 5, the Egyptians, why is God bringing these, these, these judgments not just because he's a bloodthirsty, vindictive, like, holdover from the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. No. Why? Because I want the Egyptians to know that I'm the Lord. I want them to know me. He says the same thing in chapter 9. I'm doing this. I'm raising up Pharaoh so that they might know me. It's about mercy. It's not about punishing people. It's not vindictive. It's not arbitrary. It is clearing the way for God's new world of love. And it's the only way that can happen is that God must destroy the Pharaohs in us so that he can bring us into a place where we can be free from the domination of sin and suffering and violence in the world. And we see his mercy all over the story. This is not just a story about plagues. It is not primarily a story about plagues and judgment. It is a story about mercy. I mean, notice the progression, how many times he says to Pharaoh, please relent. Pharaoh, if you will stop, if you will step aside from this oppression, I will give you mercy. And over and over again, Pharaoh hardens his heart, refuses to listen. But he has given so many opportunities. We see this mercy in even the salvation of not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians. By chapter 9, some of the Egyptians, the Bible says, 
fear the Lord. And by chapter 12, it says there's a mixed multitude that goes out from Egypt. Did you know that? Even Egyptians were rescued and delivered from Egypt in this story. We see the mercy of God. In the Exodus, God is driving Israel out of evil. But he's also going to have to drive evil out of Israel. He's going to have to drive evil out of us. And that's why in Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah says, you are hard-hearted, you are Pharaoh's but I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to save you. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to remove your shame and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to pour up my spirit on you and I'm going to bring about my kingdom of love. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring the mercy of God through judgment, but not by judging us, right? But by taking our judgment on himself. And that's why in Luke chapter 9, He's sitting with Moses and with Elijah, two of the great prophets of the Old Testament, talking about his exodus, talking about his deliverance of sin by taking the judgment that we deserve. And he says, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God wins. God is after restoring and repairing the radical ruin of the human heart and the radical ruin of the world that's been created out of a bunch of pharaohs. So I want to close with this. Just, we have communion here. I want to set this up just by asking you to consider where your heart is today. We, we read about the dangers of a hard heart, how the little choices that we make day in and day out are either turning us more into Jesus or making us more like Pharaoh, right? Hard hearts versus soft hearts. And there's a warning in Hebrews chapter 3. Close with this. The writer of Hebrews says this, take care, take care, be so careful, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness, the craftiness of sin for we have come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart don't rage against god in the world when you hear the good news of his mercy don't blame god for the sin in your own life don't project your stuff on god Hear this is good news. There is mercy for you. There is grace for you. Don't harden your heart. Allow the discipline of God to soften your heart because he is after your best. He is after your future destiny. He is after making you all that he's created you to be in Christ Jesus. That's what the good news of the gospel tells us, that God has done what we cannot do for ourselves. And he is taking heart of stone. He's giving us heart of flesh. And we can trust him even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of the evil that we experience, that he is working all things for our good. Will you harden your heart against his mercy and continue towards a path of destruction for yourself and for those around you? Or will you surrender to God's mercy, surrender to his love, and allow him to change you from the inside out? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your promises in the book of Exodus that you long to show mercy to your children. The way you show your mercy, sometimes 
It's through judgment. It's by removing evil. It's by removing violence out of not only the world, but out of human hearts. And God, that's why you came. You came to take away our sin. You came to take away our idolatry. You came to take away the injustice that lives in each one of us by becoming not only the judge, but the justifier, the one on whom the judgment fell. So God, we thank you for your mercy, and we pray that our hearts would not be hardened right now, that we would hear your voice, that we would hear you speaking to us, and that we would surrender ourselves to you right now, to your mercy, to your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.